How would you respond if God revealed to you the manner of your death? You'd probably lose a lot of sleep, maybe be a little paranoid and understandably so. But for most of us, the idea of death is just that. It's this abstract concept that happens to people out there off screen. But for Peter, his death loomed large over his entire life. If you listen to Jesus' final words to Peter in the Gospel of John, you hear this. He says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Peter knows from the very words of his Lord, the way that he's going to die, that he's going to be a martyr for his faith. And Jesus tells him, with that in mind, follow me. This is the road of the cross. So for Peter, following Christ meant following his Lord into the very clutches of death itself, armed with nothing but the promise of resurrection and glory. And this energized Peter's life with urgency, an urgency that charges through this entire letter as he calls the young church to pursue godliness by God's own divine power. So we have in 2 Peter the final words of this great sage writing to the people he loves, words of comfort, warning, and hope, words that echo and resound throughout the ages until this very day. This is Understanding 2 Peter. The Apostle Peter composed this second letter shortly after his first, somewhere between 64 and 66 AD. And he writes this second letter in order to combat the infiltration of false teaching that has emerged in the early church. So in the section we're looking at today, chapter 1, verses 1 to 15, Peter is going to begin by greeting the church with an assurance of their equal standing in the faith and an exhortation to godliness by God's divine power. And then he's going to bring an urgent reminder to recall this teaching after his impending death. So we're going to look through each of these sections piece by piece. So let's look at the first section in verses 1 and 2, where he introduces himself and then reminds the church of their faith of equal standing. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Just a little bit of background information. The early church debated the canonicity and authorship of 2 Peter, and this debate continued on even until the time of the Reformation. But the tradition reached the eventual conclusion of an authentic authorship by Peter. Now, if you read modern critical scholars, they're going to deny Peter's authorship and instead credit a pseudonymous author writing as Peter, somebody who is not Peter, but writing as if he is Peter. But on principle, we have to reject this because this is more than just using a fake name. This is writing in a fraudulent way so as to represent yourself as another real person. And the early church rejected this as an acceptable practice because God can't inspire a forgery. Furthermore, 2 Peter claims uh, authorship from Peter and supports this with uh, an eyewitness account of the transfiguration and other kinds of internal evidence. So we ought to take this letter's attribution of Peter's authorship at face value and reject the skepticism of modern scholars. If you want more information about that, there's, there's, there's a lot of good resources online you can check out uh, for more information about that. 
Now, Peter introduces himself as both a a servant and an apostle. And as an apostle, he receives a direct commission from Christ himself to act with divine authority. But as a servant or a slave, literally, he lives only to serve his master. So his role as apostle, although unique, does not give him more of Christ than anyone else. Everyone in Christ possesses the full Christ and thus has equal standing in the faith. And it's not based upon their righteousness, but God's own righteousness. And he also points out their equal standing in order to assure them that the false teachers within the church have nothing to offer them. They don't need some secret mystical knowledge or revelation because they already possess everything they need in Christ because they know God. They already know God. And this recognition of knowing God results in knowing his mercy. God's mercy flows into a word of grace and peace that abounds, multiplies to the church because they know Christ their God and Savior. That's a really important phrase. There's an early recognition of Christ's divinity right there. So don't skip the greetings to these letters. We see from a very early period in the church's history, they are recognizing that Jesus Christ is in fact God himself, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to know God is to know Christ the Lord, for they are one and the same. And this Christ grants to his people the immeasurable gift of his divine power. And that's what we're going to look at in the next section here, verses 3 to 11, where we learn about the divine power that Christ gives to us. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind." having forgotten that he has been cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Salvation from beginning to end belongs to the Lord. His divine power grants to us as a gift everything we need for life and godliness. He adopts us into his family and then works in us that we might bear a family resemblance. And that's the essence of godliness, that by obeying him, we grow in God-likeness. That is, we begin to gain and possess the attributes that God has. Now, before you accuse me of heresy, we must understand that God possesses communicable and incommunicable attributes. So his communicable attributes are those which God shares with his creatures, holiness, justice, love, goodness, and so on and so forth. But his incommunicable attributes are those which God does not share with his creatures, omnipotence, omnipresence, uh, the ability to create out of nothing. Okay, Those are things unique to God. So godliness doesn't mean we become divine in that sense. It just means that over time we possess his communicable attributes. We become holy like he is holy. We become just like he is just, loving like he is 
loving. In other words, we're conformed to the image of Christ. And here we see that God, by his grace and his divine power, gives us everything we need to grow in those attributes. And he does so through his precious and very great promises. So again, you don't need these teachers, these false teachers saying you need this special knowledge. He says you have everything that pertains to life and godliness. You already know Christ. You have everything you need to live a life pleasing for him. You don't need to follow these false teachers with their false knowledge, claiming some deeper kind of insight, that there's more than just knowing Christ. You need Christ plus something else in order to live a godly life. And the particular issue Peter addresses relates to the promise of Christ's appearing, the return of Jesus Christ to bring the fullness of the kingdom. If you read later on in chapter 3, verse 4, you see that there are false teachers who question God's promise to return. And Peter rejects this teaching. They reject this denial of the promise of God as an assault upon the faithfulness of God. God's very nature stands behind his precious promises and thus guarantees their fulfillment. So Peter's saying, look, these promises of his return, of life everlasting, of the fullness of the kingdom, of being transformed and transfigured into his image by the resurrection, you can bet your life on it. Don't listen to these false teachers who are denying this reality, but rather believe those promises. And in believing those promises, that energizes the present in a particular way. Promises by their nature come in the form of words, and they indicate future realities that affect the present. So when a man proposes to a woman, he gives a promise that he will at a future date marry her. But this future promise affects their present reality as they now enter into a time of preparation for that day. And God's promise of the eternal kingdom of righteousness is a future promise that spurs us in the present to prepare for that day by becoming righteous people ourselves. And this is what it means to partake of the divine nature, that by God's power, he forms us over time into his image, that we might become like him, right? that we might grow in Christ's likeness. We will be righteous because his kingdom will be filled with righteousness. If you didn't love God, if you weren't righteous, you would hate a kingdom in which God rules in righteousness. And so the kingdom that God promises is something that we will only appreciate and enjoy and glory in if we ourselves are righteous. And so God is making us creatures fit for his kingdom by his own divine power and his own divine calling. But God's power does not come apart from our efforts. So we're not supposed to just be passive. But Peter tells us to make every effort to pursue this godliness, to pursue these virtues. And this kind of echoes the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, when he exhorts us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's God's power that gives us the will and the work, and yet we still have to work. So God's action and our action are compatible. They don't erase one another. In fact, God's divine power and his divine action is the ground for our action. We can make every effort because God has granted to us his divine power. They actually work together. They're not opposed to one another. So we can can put effort in. And we can push ourselves toward holiness, but we can't boast in our own power as if through our effort, we were the ones that made ourselves godly. It is God's power that works through our effort that enables us to cultivate this righteousness. And Peter gives us a list, these these aspects of what it means to be holy. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Now, this list is not intended to be exhaustive or even cumulative, as if you have to start with 
faith, and then you build virtue on top of that, and then you build knowledge on top of that virtue. But rather, it's simply a, uh, a device to show these are the kinds of things that characterize a Christian's life. They're the major anchor points of holy character. Now, it's interesting to know that the word virtue in verse 5 is the same word translated as excellence in verse 3, when it speaks of God calling us to his own excellence and his own glory. He's talking about his own virtue. God has called us to the glory and virtue of Christ. And so when he says you are to grow in virtue, he's saying you're to grow in Christ's likeness. That very excellence, that very virtue that Christ embodied is the virtue that we are to embody. We're supposed to be like him, imitators of Christ, to possess that same virtue. Now, these do not happen automatically. But again, we are to make every effort. We are through uh, discipline and you know, the will and pushing ourselves to not only form these aspects of our character, but to increase in these qualities. And the idea of increasing means it's going to happen progressively over time, that there should be an upward trajectory of our holiness. Even though there might be dips, you know, in in certain points, we are to be in the totality of our lives heading toward Christ-likeness. Otherwise, we will become ineffective and unfruitful. This means that We are spurred on by this divine power to a particular end. And he's saying, if these qualities aren't in you, you're probably not a Christian, right? And and that there are times in which we obviously are lacking in our obedience. And if we keep lacking in our obedience, it might reveal that we actually don't have Christ, right? We're going to forget that we've been cleansed from our former sins, that it can actually obscure our vision or salvation. So for some Christians, when you grow lax in your holiness, you actually lose assurance, Right? And, and even for some, it shows that you were a false convert. So he's very, very serious about this. And that's why he spurs us on. He says, therefore, make your calling and election confirmed. Confirm it. Right? Not that God needs to know, but that you might know and that those around you might know. You have to put effort. We can't drift toward holiness. And so one of the ways in which we know that we're a Christian is that we see this progressive growth in maturity over our lives. It's not to be overly scrupulous about it as if, you know, oh man, you know, I I keep sitting in this way. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it is a sober-minded assessment to say, if you aren't bearing any of this fruit, then you wonder, is there genuinely a root, right? And so even as Christians, we are to say, don't forget that you have been cleansed. If you're a Christian and you're struggling with holiness, don't forget that you've been cleansed from this, that you have escaped from the corruption of the world, right? That's a past tense reality. God has decisively brought you out of the kingdom of darkness. And even though we might be tempted towards it, we shouldn't continue in it. And if we keep continuing in it, it might show that we actually haven't been separated from it. So it's one of those things to keep in mind, that we are no longer part of this corrupt world, but we are now partakers of the divine nature. That's who you are. So this isn't works righteousness, Right? Our works don't make us called and elect, but rather they demonstrate that we have been called and are God's elect, that those who have been chosen by God will reflect these characteristics. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So those changed by Christ will bear the fruit of holiness and gain entrance into his kingdom. And he says, you will never fall. Right? You will never fall if you continue in these things. What a great assurance. He says, keep going through the trials, through the difficulties, keep pushing forward toward holiness. Peter knows that we're human, and that's why he continually reminds us of these things and encourages us to pursue holiness. When he reminds us of things, it means that it's easy for us to forget. And so he's saying, remember what God has done for you. And with that understanding, remember his divine power and push forward and grow toward holiness. And that leads to his urgent reminder in verses 12 to 15. 
Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter must remind the church of these qualities, even though he knows they understand them. He doesn't expect them to be perfect. He's saying, look, you may be slacking in your pursuit of holiness, and that may affect your sense of assurance. And he says, instead of freaking out, get back on the horse, right? Remember these qualities. Remember God's power and turn back and repent, right? That's the way that God keeps us, by commanding us and calling us to stay close to him. We all need these constant reminders about the truth. Right? And, and Peter, again, he knows his death is near, which gives this great urgency to his exhortation. Make every effort toward godliness. Don't get distracted from the hope of the eternal kingdom. And Peter is quick to ensure that the church throughout generations will hear his words by writing them down. That's how we can recall his words. He actually gives us scripture. And this is actually going to lead to the next section, which gives a powerful apologetic for the inspiration of scripture. But you have to wait for the next episode for that. But this letter continues to exhort and stir us up to godliness as we look forward to the same promise of Christ appearing, the same hope that the first century church had, we have, the glorious return of Christ, the consummation of his kingdom, the the fullness of life everlasting. So Peter's powerful words remind us of the fleeting nature of life, but also the glory of the eternal life that God promises in his kingdom. And And it causes us and challenges us to set our lives on the things of lasting value. Actually, God is more concerned about the kind of person you become than necessarily what job you pick or what career you pick or where you move or any of these things. What kind of person are you becoming? God's power works in us so that we can actually change. So the issue is not whether God will make good on that promise, but whether we, by faith, will trust him and obey his words. And so you see God's divine power and our effort are harmonized. They work together. It's not one or the other, but one is actually the grounding for the other. And that by making every effort, we know the promise that God will bring that work to a completion. God doesn't start projects and then fail to finish them. If he began a work in you, he's going to finish that work. And with that confidence, we can go forward and say, I want to actually grow in these virtues, grow in my faith, grow in my steadfastness, grow in my self-control. And a lot of times it means simple Basic priorities and practices, right? Praying regularly, being in the Word, being in community, doing acts of service, growing and repenting of sins and growing in holiness and adding to these virtues all the things that he talks about. It's very practical and it happens in the ordinary everyday moments of your life with the actual people in your life. So consider for yourself which of these virtues and aspects of godliness can you grow in? Which of these virtues can you cultivate? What do you need to repent of? How can you make every effort to make sure that these qualities are increasing within you? And remember, the only way you can do it is because of the mercy of God. All of our works flow from his mercy, and that is the great hope that is true for first century Christians and 21st century Christians. 